Welcome to a very special edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. Regular listeners will have been expecting podcast host Tim Stutt and Mel Debenham, but this is a very special takeover edition by our employment and industrial relations team. My name is Nerida Jessup and I'm a partner in the employment, industrial relations and safety team here in Sydney. Today, we will be discussing how organisations are responding to the increasing community and shareholder expectations in relation to transparency around sexual harassment matters, as well as other workplace conduct issues. Which leads me to our expert guest, Lucy Boyd, a senior associate in our Melbourne Employment Industrial Relations and Safety Team, and Anna Cregan, a partner in our Perth Employment Industrial Relations and Safety Team. The podcast usually begins with asking our guests for a personal reflection on ESG and what it means to them. But I'm going to tweak that question. So, Anna, Lucy, why is sexual harassment and workplace conduct issues, why are those ESG issues? Well, I think, um, hi, Nara, great to join you and good to see you as well, Lucy. Good to be with the two of you. I think what is interesting about ESG and our practice area is that it has become abundantly clear that all of the work that we do in um, employment, industrial relations and safety matters is squarely relevant to ESG criteria, which are applied by investors when they're considering whether a business is well run and whether it warrants their investment. So I think that with a particular focus on sexual harassment is what we're seeing here. Investors want clarity around a company's performance on issues like the management of sexual harassment as relevant to whether it's a company that's well run, whether it's a company that has a strong future and whether it's a company that they want to invest in. Absolutely. I would agree with all of that, Anna. Um, I think it's really interesting over recent years, we've seen societal expectations really um, grow in this area um, in relation to workplace conduct. And, and that's well, we've seen tra that translate into shareholder expectations, employee expectations, and you know where there have been um, issues or scandals with a business, we've seen an, a, a direct impact on profits from this type of conduct as well. So it's really been a very interesting area to watch. Thanks, both. I'm going to start with my first question, which really is in relation to what we have seen as lawyers working in this space is fairly rapid change in how organisations are responding to individual complaints of sexual harassment in the workplace, as well as to uh, how organisations are proactively managing the risks of sexual harassment. Anecdotally, we know that there is increasing legal and reputational risk uh, particularly in relation to individual sexual harassment cases. Uh, but as I see it, that's probably not the, the only driver here. And I'd be really keen to understand uh, your, from your perspective, what are the key drivers that have led this change um, in the way that organisations are responding to sexual harassment risk and complaints? I think there have been a few. Obviously, there has been a huge social focus on sexual harassment as an issue, as Lucy pointed out, the treatment of women, expectations around the treatment of people generally. That did all begin with the Me Too movement about four or probably almost five years ago now, and that saw a significant focus on 
sexual harassment in particular, sexual harassment and um, and sexual offences of a sexual nature, criminal offences of a sexual nature. I think since then what we've seen has been an interesting range of policy responses by governments uh, across Australia and across the world, and also an interesting uh, change in expectations of employees and, and investors, obviously, around the standards of behaviour that they consider to be acceptable. So over five years ago, we would have seen the occasional sexual harassment matter come across our desk. There may have been a complaint. There may have been an, um, an allegation that was made. We may have assisted with an investigation, then with some advice and possibly in some cases a claim that came out of that. But they were fairly confined. We didn't see a large number of them. And the work that we saw clients doing in response to sexual harassment was exactly that. It was in response to sexual harassment largely. There would be some equal opportunity training, some workplace behaviour standards training that was done at the beginning of employment. But most of the work that was done was in responding to particular claims. That has changed significantly. And we're seeing employers now treat sexual harassment increasingly as a risk in the business which needs to be edited out like all other safety risks and attacking sexual harassment with a range of different measures intended to eliminate it entirely. And we've seen employers looking at things like pre-recruitment checks, gender equity in, um, in recruitment, uh, security measures within workplaces, training and information definitely, but not in isolation. Those things in in conjunction with a range of other measures. Then when you get to response, we're seeing things like um, trauma-informed care, victim-centric responses, particular dedicated uh, investigations and support units that are allocated to assisting people who've made sexual harassment claims or reported sexual harassment issues. So quite a different approach. And that's really what we're seeing in the jobs market. That has been contemporaneous with a range of different um, lawmakers and policymakers coming out with guidance on what the, the effective management of sexual harassment should look like at an executive level and also at a board level. So we now have, we've got the Jenkins report, we have guidance from the Australian Institute of Company Directors, we've got a raft of guidance from ESG-focused organisations like the ACCR, all of those organisations have come out with suggestions or um, recommendations around how sexual how sexual harassment should be prioritised, identified and managed within a business. Thanks, Anna. I think that's a really um, comprehensive description of really what's changed and uh, in, in the shifting expectations in this space. I'm just picking up on that uh, ACCR report as well, because one of the one of the observations made in that report relates to shareholder uh, act uh, activism and shareholder resolutions. Uh, so that report urged investors to understand the types of risks posed by sexual harassment, and it warned that Australian companies and investors would do well to take notice of trends in the United States where there are a considerable number of sexual harassment shareholder resolutions. Lucy, I'd be keen to understand if you... Uh, we're able to talk to that overseas experience and, and the types of shareholder resolutions that we've seen. Yeah, absolutely, Narada. It's There's some fascinating developments happening in the US with shareholder resolutions, and we often see that the US are at the forefront of um, how trends in this area and, and, and the direction that um, uh, uh, tra traffic might be taking in Australia too. 
Um, so one uh, particular example is in relation to Microsoft. So back in 2021, there was a shareholder resolution published which urged their board to release an annual transparency report to shareholders which assessed the effectiveness of the company's workplace sexual harassment policies. This came off the back of um, some scandals in relation to Bill Gates' inappropriate relationships with um, some Microsoft employees. Interestingly, the, the Microsoft board recommended that shareholders vote against that um, resolution, but um, perhaps that wasn't reading the room because 77% of votes were cast in favour of the approval. And so this year we'll be seeing um, the Microsoft take action and, and release that report. It, it's yet to come out. So a really interesting example of where shareholders are driving um, board action and um, demanding that companies are more transparent in relation to these issues. And, and that's... Um, the justification of that is that these kind of issues um, drive the value that shareholders are getting. Um, so, where yeah, where where com companies aren't taking um, voluntary action, we're seeing a real push for it from stakeholders such as um, investors and employees. Um, we are also seeing that boards um, voluntarily take action to disclose. Um, numbers of sexual harassment claims or um, workplace conduct claims. There's an example of BBC in the United um, Kingdom um, and also closer to home we've seen um, BHP's recent annual report disclosed um, uh, numbers of workplace complaints as well. Thanks so much. 77% is a pretty, um, pretty incredible statistic, isn't it? It's a very, very clear direction to from the shareholders. And I, I, I'm really keen, I, I'm not aware of many shareholder resolutions uh, that we've seen locally, but I, I would be keen to understand if this is something, you know, if companies in Australia are, uh, as Lucy said, reading the room on this issue, has there been a move towards voluntary transparency on this issue? I think so. I think certainly among market leaders, and that's really what prompted us to take over this podcast was coming out of annual reporting season in Australia and seeing a really exciting trend among um, some of the major uh, companies in Australia to greater transparency in, in reporting, in annual reporting on sexual harassment matters and other workplace conduct matters. Uh, and in some cases, as Lucy suggested, it seems like companies have done that of their own volition without any pressure from shareholders, like with the BHP example, they've just seen it as um, a necessary element of transparency and something that they should that they have made a decision to report on. Uh, so I think that's right. We're we're um, we're seeing companies generally move towards transparency in their reporting, and I think more broadly in their management of these issues. Where we've seen a significant move away from the use of non-disclosure agreements. We've seen sustained criticism against some companies for using non-disclosure agreements. And we've seen a number of companies make a decision to, um, across the board, not use or not enforce non-disclosure agreements to the extent they relate to allegations of sexual harassment, discrimination, um, uh, bullying, other workplace conduct, which is considered to be inappropriate. All of that being consistent with a move towards transparency on what is increasingly seen as an issue that goes to the value of the business and to how effective its management is. 
It's really interesting and exciting. I think um, w one of the issues that was called out in the Jenkins report was the issue of the application of safety laws to uh, manage the risk of sexual harassment being both a, a psychological risk and also a physical risk. Uh, and the Jenkins report said that there was not really in the past, there has been a really patchy approach from safety regulators in relation to regulating this issue. And in response, what we have seen is a really increased focus from safety regulators uh, providing guidance and, and in some cases taking uh, enforcement action in relation to uh, employers' approaches to managing the risk of sexual harassment. And I, I wonder, Anna, whether the approach to reporting on sexual harassment matters and issues is in part in response to that increased focus from safety regulators? I think so. I think it, it's certainly consistent with it. It's certainly consistent with the approach taken on safety matters for companies to now begin um, a trend towards transparency in the reporting of sexual harassment matters. So for many years now, most major companies in Australia have included sections in their annual report that deal with environment and safety. And there would be quite some detail in, in the safety component of that report about past incidents, about um, any past non-compliances, about how those things are managed, about systems for making sure they don't happen. Uh, with the Jenkins report coming out and being very clear that sexual harassment should be treated as a safety issue and is in fact a safety issue and that it should be proactively addressed in the same way all other safety risks are addressed and, and should be eliminated as far as practicable. Uh, it's consistent with that approach for companies to now report on sexual harassment in the same way they report as on every other safety risk in their business and on its management. And I think as, as we were discussing earlier, the next frontier in that reporting and the next frontier or a next frontier in that area of transparency might be in the realm of mental health more generally. So issues like sexual harassment, bullying have been seen to have a mental health impact. They were initially coined as safety issues that were really more mental health, more likely to impact mental health than physical safety, although it's certainly possible that they could do both. But I think what we're seeing now with a, with a move towards greater regulation in the of mental health and greater um, detail about what is required to effectively manage mental health is scope for companies to be pressured to report on their management of mental health issues. Uh, so issues like fatigue, working hours, stress, the allocation of work as between roles, um, the allocation of difficult work to um, particular people, so difficult sensitive matters um, to particular parts of the workforce, you know, just how are companies managing the safety risks that are associated with all of that. That may well be the next frontier in shareholder activism and we may see shareholder pressure for com on companies to release information about how they propose to manage those risks into the future. Thanks Anna, um, great answer. I think just thinking, applying safety thinking to this issue, to psychological health and safety and sexual harassment in particular. There is an interesting challenge in this space and uh, employers have been working on reporting culture over many years and, and we've seen this in relation to reporting culture around physical risk. Uh, but there is a, a particular issue, I think, in how can we ensure that 
we are driving workplace culture that encourages reporting of sexual harassment complaints, knowing that often these arise in the context of power imbalances. And the AHRC report found, you know, that only about 17% of sexual harassment incidents are being reported through um, employers. If I'm sitting on a board or I'm in management, this can seem like a challenge. Uh, how how do you think that companies can drive that culture where workers are encouraged to raise complaints um, and feel safe in speaking up? And a second part of this question, and perhaps I'll put this to you, Lucy, is are there other sources of data that, that companies and boards can look to identify whether there are risks and hazards in their business and to monitor whether these issues are being successfully managed? a really interesting question, Nerida, and I think it's a really important problem that um, employers are, are facing and, and, and need to fix. And, you know, because really, how can you fix something you don't know about? Um, and I think the first step is recognising that the fact that you might not be receiving reports of sexual harassment or workplace complaints um, uh, it is might be an indicator itself that you have a problem with reporting. You know, no complaints is not always well. It's it's generally probably not a good thing, given it's well understood that there's a huge societal problem with these um, with sexual harassment and 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 workplace conduct issues. Um, so that I guess that would be the first place. And and how do we address this? On the one hand, it's um, uh, trying to drive um, cultural change within a business and create that speak up culture. And as you say, there's a lot of lessons that employers can draw on from how that speak up culture has been created in relation to uh, physical um, safety incidents. Um, uh, so there's, uh, there's lessons to draw on there. You can look at education around active bystander training some employers are looking at uh, mandatory reporting of uh, workplace complaints for um, line leaders or HR um, representatives, which can drive up the numbers of complaints which are being reported as well. Um, also, as you say, drawing on our other safety lens um, tools that we have. So looking at identifying the key drivers of sexual harassment, which can be gender imbalance, where groups of employees are, have exposure to customers or third parties, and then looking at um, controls, which you can put in place to manage those risks, whether that's improving gender balance at the higher levels of your organisation or your organisation in general, or more training security measures, which Anna's mentioned earlier on. And then if we're looking beyond the individual complaints and trying to take a more proactive approach to managing sexual harassment and workplace conduct risk, um, taking a holistic view, looking at areas of your business which you might be seeing greater rates of attrition or low performance um, and trying to manage that proactively. So perhaps by... Um, you know, your employee engagement surveys or, you know, there's this concept of not just having exit interviews but having um, interviews throughout um, employment to try to address issues before they turn into huge um, workplace scandals. Um, 
so I think, and then also, of course, looking at your reporting mechanisms, and that's where we come to this transparency, um, greater transparency, which we've been discussing. That's right. I think uh, the final issue, I think, that's been the subject of fairly close scrutiny and, and really criticism um, broadly across the community is employers using non-disclosure agreements to settle these types of claims. I know there's been a shift in the thinking uh, from employers in, in how they will settle these claims, but and are you able to talk us through the, the current state of play in the use of, of NDAs in settling sexual harassment complaints? Sure, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we are seeing a move away from the use of NDAs uh, certainly among some large employers who are attempting to take a, a transparent stance on issues like sexual harassment and not um, not be uh, in a position where employees or former employees are prevented from speaking about their experiences because they happen to have entered into a workplace settlement in relation to a particular claim. So we are seeing a move away from the use of them. We're also seeing greater scrutiny of the use of them and questions being asked about whether they are really necessary and if they are to be used, what their appropriate scope should be. So should it cover the fact of the claim? Should it just cover the amount of any settlement? Should it you know, only cover um, particular details rather than the whole, um, everything leading up to the claim and, and the settlement of the claim, as was once the approach? Um, that's the approach in Australia, though, Narada. I think you had spent some time looking at the approaches in other jurisdictions uh, in respect of NDAs, which was also telling. Yeah, there is a, an emerging, uh, it, it is an emerging area of regulation. So in some jurisdictions, we've either seen a move to or uh, legislators considering putting some guardrails on when NDAs can be used. And that really follows from the thinking about ensuring that, that victims and complainants have a voice and are able to speak about these issues and also that there is a victim-centred approach to investigation and settlement of these claims. There will be cases where individual complainants want uh, confidentiality uh, or NDA-type arrangements, uh, but having some guardrails in place so that that can be only at the request of the complainant, for example, that there is a need for independent legal advice. And it's really the by exception settlement of claims, not as we've seen in the past, the expectation uh, that any settlement will include a full confidentiality, non-disparagement uh, arrangement. And that really is just to tip the balance in favour of victims and, and ensuring that employers are responding to these issues with that victim-centred approach in mind, which is really key um, part of the, the, the approach to, to resolving these claims and investigating these claims. So it's an interesting space and it's been an interesting trend. And I think it's really turned on its head the thinking in relation to how we are responding to sexual harassment complaints uh, and how we're managing legal risk. So that brings me to the end of my questions. I've had, it's been really lovely to speak to both of you and a really interesting conversation. Uh, Mel and Tim usually close each episode with an interesting or quirky fact from the world of ESG. Uh, and so I thought this one would be fitting. Uh, the ACCR report quoted a rather staggering statistic 
that I think had been uh, arrived at by some independent consultants who had sought to measure the cost of sexual harassment on the Australian economy. And in 2018 alone, it was found that sexual harassment cost the Australian economy an estimated 3.8 billion in lost productivity, staff turnover, absenteeism, and other impacts. Um, which I think is rather breathtaking uh, figure. So it's an important issue. There's lots of reasons that I think companies uh, want to get this right. Uh, and I think there's been such encouraging and exciting developments and a real shift uh, in the thinking in this space. So thanks, Lucy and Anna, for talking to me today. Oh, it's been fascinating, Nerida. Thank you very much for having us. Thank um, you, Nerida, and um, it was great to ha have some time on Mel and Tim's podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Mel and Tim. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.